0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Watts-Smith.
2: I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking with Jennifer Palka, who is the former Deputy Chief Technology Officer of the U.S. and the founder of Code for America, um, which is an organization that helps connect governments and people within government with technology professionals. She's also the author of the book Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. So this is a show that's going to be a lot about bureaucracy, something we've talked about certainly before. But um, Jennifer's perspective, I think, is is interesting mm-hmm. um, because, you know, she really zeroes in on what happens after a bill is passed, right? In fact, somebody actually has to implement it and, and make it happen, whether that's unemployment or veterans benefits or services or healthcare or other types of government services. They often in this day and age involve technology and that can create a whole host of problems. So, you know, Jennifer's book both presents how some of those things can go wrong, but I think also she has some ideas for, how people both inside and outside of of government can help make things better for everyone.
0: What I appreciate about this book is, and this project, generally speaking, is that it speaks to recoding on two frequencies. So yes, there's the question about technology and you alluded, Jenna, that things can go wrong, but also she's asking a kind of wider question about how we rethink the way that we (laughs) just do a lot of common sense things that we do. You know, many of the students that I interact with want to understand why things don't go as smoothly as one anticipates in policy. We often kind of think about how there are many problems that we all kind of know the solutions to, and yet, there seems to be a hiccup between um, if a policy is actually implemented and, you know, if, excuse me, if a, if a bill is actually passed into a law and then, you know, what happens next? And what I, another thing that I appreciate about this project is that it really takes a moment to look at what happens between the passing of a bill and the implementation of of the law and essentially kind of looking at the difference between the good policy intentions and the harsh reality of implementation.
1: Yeah. And and Candace in doing that, she's really highlighting something very important about how people relate to and interact with their government. Mm-hmm. because it's it's in this implementation phase of policy, which is not necessarily the focus of the media. It's not necessarily the, mo- the focus within a sort of horse race frame of what's going on in the political world, but it's yeah. their interaction with uh, who we often refer to as street-level bureaucrats or the administrators at the lower level or the forms that somebody has to fill out to... Uh, be- to uh, access benefits of of certain kinds. It's at that level where people uh, really, I don't know, come to, I think, form a lot of their uh, opinions about what, what government, how government is doing and how well it's acting in their benefit or whether it's acting in their benefit or not. You know, I think about how, because we're in the midst of one natural disaster after another, you know, mm-hmm. one of the first things FEMA does is mm-hmm. send people, to people down to help people fill out the forms and make sure they know what it is that they need to fill out in order to access the benefits that might be available to them.
0: But I think what is really important about Jen's work is that She helps us to understand how we got to these, you know, how we got to that point where you're filling filling out a form and you didn't fill it out right. And now you got to go to the back of the line because you can't use blue pen and white out or whatever, you know, somebody made up that little glitch and then we have to deal with it or in kind of bigger, bigger, higher stakes issues. An example that she gives is um, when uh, California changes its marijuana laws and allows people to expunge their records, except it's really hard to expunge your record. And so, you know, what messages are sent by, what messages are sent to citizens when they can't live out the ideals that a policy suggests that they should be able to live out?
1: yeah yeah and she speaks to we know from some political science work that studies uh, feedback from public policies that this matters you know that that people's ex- experiences with government in terms of completing forms trying to gain benefits that they might be entitled to being denied the benefits that they might be entitled to then affects their political participation, their, whether or not they feel alienated from the system or not, or, or, or feel engaged within it. So it's an important part of democracy uh, and one that doesn't really get very much attention. And one, I also think that, and she doesn't really speak to this that much, but, but I, I was also thinking that you know, in the American political system, bureaucracy is a highly decentralized thing. And so sometimes, you know, who are you dealing with? You're dealing with your local government, or are you dealing with your state government, your county government, are you dealing with the state, or are you dealing with the national government? And and it, it, the capacity of some of those bureaucracies is going to vary widely. The investment in them is going to vary widely, and it's also not always clear to people who is responsible for this experience that I'm, that I'm having.
2: I think you're right that you know this is a, an often underlooked part of, of political systems and, and coverage about political systems for the reasons that you all have described. I think that sets the table well. So let's go now to the interview with Jen Palka. Jennifer Palka, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. You write in the book a little bit about the era that a lot of these systems came online uh, in the you know 60s or into, into the 70s, kind of the mid-20th century. And I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what the kind of attitude was about you know, the, the government's relationship to technology and about the government's capacity to do hard technical things, kind of set the stage for what things were like when a lot of these systems you write about first came online.
3: Yeah, it's funny because I had worked in the White House and had felt this resistance to dealing with, you know, what I would call digital, they would call tech. Um, But really in the end, I've I've sort of come to the realization that it's about just implementation. And we happen to do a lot of implementation of law and policy through digital means through technology now, but you know when I went back and sort of looked at these points in history when we made decisions about where technology would sit within federal government in particular, and I think that's trickled down to states and, and municipalities. You know there were times when you know when we when we said, oh yeah, that what this is is a tool, right? It is you know back in in the sixties. With the Brooks Act, uh, at that time, it was really, you know, data processing on giant mainframes. And yes, indeed, that was something that you had to go buy from these very specialized vendors and getting the right price for it was was relatively important, sort of bundling it across agencies. And so, you know, in the 60s, there was this decision that it was, you know, something that you, you you would have people purchasing people be mostly in charge of. Then I kind of check in again in the 90s when we have two things going on. One is the Federal uh, Workforce Restructuring Act, which is just, you know, I guess, stand in for a whole slew of things that were very pro-outsourcing. It didn't really have anything to do with digital. It was just this desire to get stuff out of government at that time. And digital happened to be on the rise. If you think about the early to mid 90s, this is when Amazon is becoming a real thing. Google uh, Etc. And it, technology is moving from this thing that you go buy time on a mainframe to the way we're going to shop, the way we're going to get information, full transformation of our society. And once again, in the 90s, there's a relook at whether it belongs as a strategic focus of the White House or just something that people buy. And uh, these two members of Congress, Klinger and Cohen, introduce the Klinger-Cohen Act and say, maybe the White House should really have responsibility for this. May, you know, Maybe we should be really looking at this as a, as a key strategic consideration the government needs to really grapple with. And the White House, being asked to take this on, says, no, thank you. It's not for us. That is, in the words of the Deputy Director for Management in the Time, operational in nature and therefore inconsistent with the policy role of this institution and once again it because becomes something that we want to buy and get the right price for the same way we buy pencils or fleets of cars instead of something that key people in the most powerful parts of government are really thinking about and i you know i really come down to okay that is indicative not just sort of of a you know general fear that technology might make important people look stupid, which certainly comes up all the time and is a very understandable human response, but also this very, very deep seated um, distance between policy and its implementation. And in fact, I think at times a disdain for implementation by people who consider themselves policy folks. And, you know, if there's one thing I could change, really, I think it would be that. It would be a way of thinking about implementation as separate from policy and not just separate, but less important. And if we can change
2: that, I think really everything follows from that in a certain way. And then when things go wrong, as, as you you started to, to mention before, there you know, people, you know, um, no one wants to be embarrassed. No one wants to be that person, especially called in front of Congress for a public hearing about why this this technology, this process went wrong. I, I know you were involved in the the aftermath of the Healthcare.gov rollout. Can, can you talk more about how the those failures, like how the the kind of ramifications that that has down the line, and perhaps is it a a chilling effect or the extent? to which there is a, a chilling effect on, uh, you know, innovation or taking chances or thinking outside the box, doing things differently uh, moving forward. Oh, I think there is
3: hundred percent a chilling effect. Uh, and I'll give an example also, not from the book, but in California over the past couple of years, the California department of technology has been trying to sort of think outside the box, make some changes to how it approaches technology delivery uh, or, you know, digital service delivery to people of California. And they've, they're they stuck in a very legacy approach, huge waterfall projects. It's really not uncommon for something to be close to or over a billion dollars, you know, for a modernization effort. In fact, they have 1.1 billion out on the street for UI modernization now, which which I don't think is a good idea. But they... The continued problems, which are, should frankly be expected in those billion-dollar technology projects, are garnering you know lots of criticism. And these good government uh, groups have asked for an audit. And this audit comes out, and you know, first thing that they point at is a strategic plan that the CDT did a couple of years ago that was non-standard. You know, why was it done this way? It didn't look like a traditional. It was trying to get to outcomes instead of process. It was trying to think about service delivery instead of requirements. It was doing all the things I think if you really examine it, you want them to be doing. But when you call the auditors up, they don't know what good service delivery looks like. They just know whether you've checked this box. Do you have a procedure in place? Did you follow it? If you didn't have a procedure, let's add one. And this is actually the opposite of of what you want. You are then doubling down on a culture of you know, fulfilling requirements, uh, making sure you're compliant, but not making sure you're getting the outcome, not making sure that the software works for the people it's supposed to work for, not making sure that, you know, you're actually meeting people's needs. So, uh, you know, I'm talking about an audit. Of course, you're mentioning like many, many hearings where you can also bring in, inst- reports from inspectors general and the GAO there's this entire oversight structure that really doubles down and makes much worse this concept i call the accountability trap mm-hmm. which is that you know public servants are simultaneously held accountable to getting the outcome everybody expects and also demonstrating huge fidelity to a large number of policies and procedures without recognizing that those policies and procedures are often in huge tension with getting the outcome so they're in a total double bind and at the end of the day when you know the oversight uh, apparatus you know spins up to go get somebody, you know, for something that's gone wrong, like a healthcare.gov or during the pandemic, the unemployment insurance problems, you know, any of these things, which, you know, by the way, let me asterisk that, that they were in fact both successes in a lot of ways, like UI Mm -hmm. paid out a lot of claims. Yeah, the backlog was unacceptable, I agree, but a lot of claims were paid out. Healthcare.gov, in fact, by the end of the first uh, uh, enrollment period, had enrolled more people than we thought Even where possible before the failure. So, you know, there's very little focus on the ways these programs succeed, huge focus on the way that they fail. And when we focus on that failure, we focus on fidelity to process in a way that, you know, that is how the public servants need to protect their careers, their ability to advance. We are creating a system that causes greater risk aversion. And we we make that system worse when we call for the kinds of oversight that we have today.
2: Yeah. Uh, so I've, I want to come back to the idea of of career incentives for public servants or perhaps lack thereof. But on this point about the accountability trap, where does that come from? I know, you know, obviously oversight has been part of the government for a long time, but is there a, a particular point or period of time you can point to when things kind of spiraled out of control or got to this, this point, this sort of double bind you, you described, or was it something that just kind of happens, you know, slowly over time?
3: I think our addiction to oversight has always been there. I think that the ways in which oversight can be, um, damaging instead of helpful Increase very much correlated with the ways that we separate um, policy and implementation. I think they, they really go hand in hand. Um, mm-hmm. And we have increasingly separated policy and implementation as we've gone into a digital world mm-hmm. because we've decided to put a whole bunch of processes around the creation of that technology. So you've inserted an entire, truly gigantic apparatus between the people who've made the policy and the people who have to implement it um and i mean like frontline people operating that technology mm-hmm. like that that procurement apparatus and all the compliance around procurement um has just created miles and miles of distance so um the further they are separated the worse we're going to have those um failures and the worse the oversight um uh, sort of double down is going to be
2: the other thing that gets in the way here i think is the the waterfall Mentality mm-hmm. methodology that that you describe, can you say more about what that is for folks who might not be familiar with that that term or or that philosophy and and yeah how it gets in the way of of this this progress that you've been talking about? The
3: waterfall is a metaphor and it, it's also known as a software development methodology um, but and in waterfall software methodology is used in government and I think mostly to the detriment of the outcomes we intend, but I'm not talking about it specifically as a shift that government needs to make off of waterfall software development, Mm -hmm. but but as a larger metaphor for how government operates. So in software, which is sort of the micro level of it, you start with, um, gathering requirements for something. And then when that's done, that stage is complete. You move on to, you know, developing the thing, then you move on to testing it. And at each, I'm vastly simplifying at each step, you don't go back. That's why like water, water never flows up a waterfall. That's the key part of, of the metaphor. Um, and that's, really how we, you know, come up with law and policy and then hand it down to regulators and then hand it down to implementers. And there's no return trip. There's no way for those people at the lower tiers of that waterfall to tell the people above them, hey, actually, what if we, the way Yadir Sanchez said, hey, what if we admitted API instead of (laughs) did this data extract? There's, you know, a million other examples. And that- that the fact that information, insights, and in fact, I think power only flow one way, creates an environment that isn't serving anybody in that waterfall. I think mostly people think, oh, well, it has to be that way, because the people at the top of it like the power of handing things down. They may, but they also hate the outcomes that they get, when nobody has really had meaningful conversations and collaborations as these things get handed down. I mean, the best example, I think, of that in the book is in, uh, I believe it's chapter four, where I talk about this requirement for this very you know outdated piece of software that's in the... Um, Uh, This software that needs to update the satellites that run Mm -hmm. um, the GPS system or global positioning system, like really, really important. And the Air Force has somehow decided that this piece of software doesn't matter what it's called, but it's called an enterprise service bus is required by the federal enterprise architecture which you know then landed it in the department of defense enterprise architecture and therefore in the air force enterprise architecture and because that federal enterprise architecture was you know essentially conceived of to be mandated by congress the people writing the contract at the Air Force will tell you Congress requires this. We can't take it out, but it literally is stopping the software from working. And sadly, it is absolutely not required by Congress. And if you know if you go back to Congress and say, "Well, you guys, you know, created that requirement, and we can't take it out," they'll go, "What the Jesus <laughs> are you talking about?" Right? Because there's no conversation. There's this miscommunication all the way down the line and congress is then of course furious about the gigantic like billions and billions of dollars of cost overruns on this program for the software for the satellites and it's just a huge game of you know miscommunication and telephone and that is all due to the essential waterfall nature not of the software development process mm-hmm. but of the process of handing down what you know are Thought to be requirements or direction from the highest levels of government Mm -hmm. to the actual implementers, so so far down on the ground.
2: Yeah, but so in in that example you were just talking about, and in the you know lots of others I'm sure are out there throughout the varying layers of of government and agencies. Like how. What are the first steps to get out of something like that? It's just someone has to blink first and say, oh, we, you know, we were mistaken about this or we weren't, you know, the, yes, like we were interpreting this the wrong way or just kind of owning up to it. Is, is that the first step here? Or, you know, how how do you begin to to move forward from something like that? You
3: know, it's a great example, again, and I don't and I want to harp too much on the oversight thing, but in that particular story, they never get rid of this ESB mandate. And it's in part because it's gone too far down the road now of failure. And, you know, once you've had some cost overruns and some delays, uh, there's more and more attention on it. And the more attention is that more people are touching it or who say, you know, we've got to make sure they're compliant with everything. And, you know, we can't remove this mandate instead of, hey, you know, this thing's going great. We have some flexibility to do what we want. I also interview in the book, a guy who does software for the Air Force, who's like, yeah, occasionally I come up against this requirement that I'm supposed to have an ESB and I just add it to the chart and resend the chart and no one ever asks any questions. And he gets around that mandate. And he says plenty of people do all the time when you're not under enormous scrutiny. You know, I think the way to solve it is you've got to have somebody like a Yadira at CMS very early on saying, look, we're going to do it the right way. We're going to not um, be so literal and so maximalist about the policy and regulation and, and, you know, whatever that's being handed down to us from the start, because then you have a more successful project and then you have less oversight, (laughs) but it's really hard to get a, once you're in that, you know, in that, um, You know, once you've sort of sparked the oversight, uh, um, you know, animal, once you've poked that beast, I suppose.
2: Yeah. Uh, So, you know, we've we've talked on this show before about the idea of administrative burden. We've had Don Moynihan on, who I know uh, you cite his work in in your book as well. But you 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 tell a story that I just thought exemplified this so well. And it's the um, veteran who's trying to get enrolled in the V.A., yeah. Uh, and you, you and your team, uh, worked with him and eventually got him enrolled by, I, I wonder if you could just t- tell us that, that story and, you know, what it took to finally get the people at the VA, uh, with, you know, the, the power over these systems to see what was happening from their, the customer's perspective.
3: Sure. Let me start by saying I did not do that. That was the Uh wonderful team of Marina Nitsa and Emily Tavalaris and Marianne Brody. Uh Um, They were faced with trying to put some of the forms that veterans need to use to apply for benefits online. This was back in 2013 or maybe 20, I think it was early 2014. The VA has come a long way since then. I just want to Uh say that up front. Uh Um, And as any good user researcher would do, they started with using these forms themselves and found that, in fact, if you tried to apply for healthcare benefits anywhere but inside the building, the form just wouldn't load at all. It wasn't like, you know, when we complain about something being hard to use or not working on mobile. It just didn't load <laughs> into a browser. And uh, they would go to folks inside the building and say, this is a problem. And everybody in the building had a computer that was configured with a certain combination of internet Explorer and Adobe reader. And both versions were outdated. It was like a very specific combination. Mm -hmm. Um, And like almost no computer in the world was configured that way outside. But of course the requirement that went into the contract that the vendor fulfilled specified that particular combination of Internet Explorer and Adobe Reader. Um, and when they said like this doesn't work outside the building, they you know pulled up the paperwork and said, I am sorry, but because the paperwork says that the vendor fulfilled the requirements, and an IVNV independent, you know, verification and validation vendor signed off on this. We've paid them. There's no way for us to open this up because on paper it works. And this team went out, and uh, in fact, they went to the. Uh, presidential uh, correspondence office and asked for letters that had been sent to the president by veterans having trouble getting their benefits, reached out to one of them, met him at a Starbucks and recorded him trying to use the application. Um, Talked to him about how many dozens, maybe hundreds of times he'd tried in the past, how many years he'd spent trying to get on veterans benefits. The incredible you know, pain this was causing him in his life, having not seen a doctor. And they, you know, they did a sort of screen capture and audio of him doing this and brought it to a meeting with Sloan Gibson, then deputy secretary of the VA. And it was so powerful. And I think, you know, this guy, Dominic, was very colorful in his language, but also very charming and very forgiving, given what we would put him through. And that moment really changed The frame. I mean, it was just, it's a three or four minute clip, I think. And, you know, by the time it's over, you have Sloan Gibson saying, we've got to fix this. Let's start by getting Dominic his benefits, number one, which is exactly the right response. And secondly, I don't care what the paperwork says, this doesn't work. But it is, I think, a testament to government's addiction to requirements, and how the whole notion of requirements goes terribly, terribly wrong. Because people will tell you, you know, You can't write a requirement that just says the software works. That's not independently verifiable. And yet, that means you will continually have things like that old VOHA, Veterans, I can't remember what it stands for, healthcare application, that meet requirements and do not work. And and they can not work in a wide, wide variety of ways. But it is not because government is bad at technology, it's not because we have bad programmers. It's because we have a system that relies on requirements instead of meeting user needs, and I can't tell you the number of people have told me we will we'll never get rid of the idea of requirements in government. It's fine, but we really have to start interrogating this addiction to requirements and understanding where that comes from and how we might change it.
2: Yeah, and you know, uh, you and I were were chatting before we started recording about the you know how this kind of connects back to democracy and, and trust in institutions and and faith in our democracy. It, it can seem uh, as you know as as I was reading your book, if you're kind of sort of stuck in the mud on some of these things, like the the big picture of of trust in, in government and faith in democratic institutions, can feel very far away. Uh, but I, I wonder, I guess, two questions. One, how much do those big picture things Way on the the minds of the you know public servants that that you spoke with, and uh, you know how much impetus do you think there is to make some of these changes for these reasons of the the overall health and of and faith in our democracy? I think that
3: the connection between the public's experience with government services, and the public's willingness to engage in democracy, as we think of it on sort of the electoral side, like, do they vote? (laughs) Are they engaged in public dialogue? Um, You know, do they believe that government can be, even if they don't feel it is today, a force for good? Those things are much more deeply connected than we tend to talk about. I'm not a political scientist or an academic of any sort, but I did take some inspiration from Joe Sauce's uh, paper several years ago that shows that people who have negative experiences with means tested benefits vote at lower rates. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you, you, you mentioned, you know, how do the public servants feel about this? Every public servant has many, many experiences in their life where when someone finds out they work for the government at any level, the you know, somebody they know will complain to them about, uh, being at the DMV or trying to get their SNAP benefits, or they have a cousin who's, um, on probation and these just terrible things are happening to people as they get stuck in the bureaucracy and they hear from them that, that experience, even if it's secondhand makes them believe that our democracy isn't working. And they, the public who has these experiences don't tend to distinguish between the bureaucracy and electoral politics and i think that when we fail to make that connection we are inviting greater populism i think also you know since we were just talking about the health and well-being of the civil service you know when we don't have a bold plan for supporting the civil service better and making hiring, and I suppose to some degree, I would put it second, firing, you know, more reasonable, we are inviting the kinds of civil service reform that the Heritage Foundation is promoting, which includes Schedule schedule F, which to me is like, I want civil service reform and I don't necessarily mean legislative reform. I want practice and and Mm. practice reform, but that's the nightmare version of it. But if we don't have another version of it that's equally bold but more respectful of the civil service and more respectful of our democratic norms, then we are inviting that nightmare version.
2: For our listeners who don't work in government, what are some things that they can do to help, uh, you know, work through some of these these problems or, or are there ways that people who are not inside the government can contribute to, to some of these shifts we've been talking about?
3: Absolutely. They have to be a big part of this. So just as a regular citizen, and this applies to anybody who works inside or outside of government, we've got to start holding our elected leaders accountable differently. We never ask our elected leaders about implementation. We only ask them about their policy positions and their values. But your values are just words until they're put into practice. So exactly what I said earlier about they're gardeners and they have to take care of the soil as well as the seeds. They have to care about the soil as well as what the soil, you know, can can grow for them. They're not going to do that at all until voters and donors start asking them questions about it. I'd love to see that happening in mass. Secondly, um I'd love to see people who don't work in government do work in government. They don't that. I'm not saying they have to abandon their careers entirely, though they may want to. I've seen many, many people say, I'm just going to do this for a three month stint, you know, helping out and they go, oh, my God, I'm so needed here. This is such meaningful work. They go in and stay forever. But um, one way to get involved, um, you know, at a very lightweight way, though, this is more for people with technology skills, not exclusively, is to volunteer with an organization like United States Digital Response. I happen to be one of the co-founders and on the board of that organization. So I am biased, but they give people a pretty fantastic experience helping Government with a short term project where they need, you know, a skill set that that they just don't have access to. And many of those people have decided to go on and try a little longer stint and end up in government, not all of them, but they all report just being really delighted at the opportunity to learn more how government works and to really help the American people.
2: Great. Well, um, I know you you link to uh, that that organization and those other resources you mentioned on the book's website. So we will certainly point our listeners to that for people who want to learn more or maybe yeah, throw their hats into the proverbial ring and and get involved. But uh, Jen, thank you. you so much for this book and for joining us today to talk about it.
3: It was a delight to be here. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. So interesting interview. She mentions at the end that she uh, supports various kinds of civil service reform. She doesn't go into them that much in the interview. She does go into them much more detail in the book. But one thing she does mention as a bad idea is, uh, is something having to do with what's called Schedule F. Uh, also, sometimes referred to as Project Twenty Twenty Five, and and this this is reference to an idea that's increasingly taking hold uh, within conservative uh, policy circles. Uh, started with the Trump administration right near the end, uh, mm-hmm. where they changed Schedule F to, in effect, open up or, or turn a. Uh, uh, 20,000 civil service jobs into political appoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's now been picked up by the Heritage Foundation on something called 2025. Several of the Republican candidates have endorsed it. So it's something I think we're going to hear a lot more about and something that I think is probably worth talking about because one thing that strikes me about it, Candace, is it feels like it takes us back to a time before the civil service And had me thinking about why we started a civil service in the first place.
0: Right. Right. So the idea is to appoint people who are are serving at the pleasure of the president and to move a particular set of kind of policy ideas that, you know, in this case, if it were a Republican president, which which is the idea, then um, that. Those goals would be made first and foremost, and people could be hired and fired for living up to the expectations of the executive rather than living up to the expectations of professionalism, meritocracy, and I would go maybe far enough to say the rule of law, right, which is what professional bureaucrats do. We often don't like bureaucrats because... (laughs) They do, <laughs> they're redoing their jobs, <laughs> right? Which is sometimes inconvenient to us, but it's um, a matter of principle, right? That there are rules, regulations, and processes, good, bad, or indifferent, but the the, the way that we typically do it, or the way that we do it now, uh, is that these people who are appointed or hired are are on the basis of professionalism and meritocracy.
1: Right. I mean, it it might be useful to just remember that before we really had a civil service, we had a bureaucracy or government administrators based entirely upon political spoils. And so uh, whoever won got to appoint everybody, and then somebody else won got to appoint everybody. And the appointments were basically in exchange for political favoritism, for loyal, for political favors, for loyalty, uh, for whatever that might be, and that was replaced in the progressive era with uh, a civil service that was intended to be based upon a more scientific uh, and apolitical form of administration, uh, where the people that are carrying out policy, implementing, as we were talking about in the first part of the show. Are there because of uh, because of their expertise in a certain area, because of their professional accomplishments, uh, because of some sort of merit based system, uh, and and so what, what we're seeing here is an effort to enhance political control uh, and. It, 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 potentially putting people in who really have no business being put in uh, to positions that were previously largely seen as, uh, as merit-based positions.
0: I think one of the things about this business of project 2025 and schedule F is that the argument for it can rest not on executive control but on uh, our focus on failure so we do tend to talk about the bureaucracy in a very <clears throat> negative way and and jen points this out that when we f- when we focus on failure on some level the next the logical step is to dismantle or to do something entirely different rather than to kind of rethink what is what is it that's gone wrong. That makes us see this gap between good policy ideals and um, sometimes, you know, policy implementation that doesn't just seem to be quite right. And so, I really appreciate her kind of noting that that there are successes that people do get the things that they need from government. That um, technology has been leveraged in ways by bureaucracies. And and so I just wanted to highlight that, that I think that some of what we're going to hear around this kind of campaign toward this this project 2025 is going to be rooted in, hey, when was the last time you did X, Y, and Z and it didn't go right, but so many things do go well. Um, could they be better? I think she she highlights some of the the reasons that underlie inefficiencies. But to just full on swing towards complete dismantling or moving toward this political appointments doesn't is not going to answer the questions that we have yeah. right now. It's not answering the concerns that people have right now.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it struck you this way, but but in her discussion about the focus on failures. As, as opposed to successes, it, it, it had me thinking about just the old metaphor of fire alarms versus police patrols, and and that it's a it's a congressional thing, mm-hmm. like like for Congress, for congressional committees, the way to get the way to get attention, uh, which is basically what they want to do, is to bring in the failures, right? To 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 look for the things that go wrong, to bring them in, pull them on the mat, you know. Ask hard questions, humiliate them if necessary, whatever that might take. But the politics aren't really there to be looking at things on an ongoing basis and say, no. "Oh, you know, you guys are doing a really good job at this." It, I mean, there are there are ways of there, there are ways in which that goes on, right? There is there are these continuous auditing procedures that go on within Congress, and they go on within the bureaucracy as well, uh, but they don't receive particular attention because. It's not really news when something works.
0: And so one of the things that she talks about is that there are people who believe themselves to be too good for implementation. And so if you believe yourself to be too good to be a public servant in that way, then I can't imagine that you would be willing to welcome feedback from someone below you.
1: Right. And the rewards are also not there for not keeping your head down. Right. Well, this has been interesting discussion. Always enjoy talking about bureaucracy with Candace. I feel like we always get the bureaucracy shows. Uh, we love <laughs> bureaucracy. We need it. It's good. It's good for us. It is my favorite part of teaching in uh, Intro to American Politics. So I always have a good time around bureaucracy, uh, and it was fun to do this today. So, uh, for uh, Democracy Works, I'm Michael Berkman.
0: I'm Candace Watts Smith. Thanks for listening.
2: Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mickey Klein, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer, editorial review by Emily Reddy, and additional production support from Andy Grant and Chris Allen. If you enjoyed what you heard today, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It will help new people find the show. Find more great podcasts about democracy and civic engagement in the Democracy Group podcast network at democracygroup.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.